Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Powatic, and my co-host joining me today is Aaron Cameron. Our guest is Andrew Joyner. He's the Managing Director of Tricon Residential. He oversees all Canadian apartment activities for a total of 4,200 residential units in his pipeline. He's got a great handle on that market. Welcome to the podcast today to discuss everything apartments. Hi, Adam. Hi, Aaron. Thanks very much for having me. So, Andrew, we always like to kick off these podcasts by getting into the background of the speaker. We have actually had somebody from Tricon on before. I'll put a link in the show notes. That was John English's episode in our early days, but a lot has happened at Tricon since. It's worth going back and listening. Again, it will be in the show notes, but today will be a much fresher picture. But we'll start off with Andrew's story there before we get into the more recent Tricon activities. So Andrew, can you walk us through how you got to where you are today? Sure. So I uh, grew up in Toronto and out of school, joined Oxford Properties Group. I originally started in the asset management group there, looking at a bunch of redevelopment opportunities throughout their portfolio. And I think like a lot of young people, when they start in the industry, they think, you know, acquisitions and investments is where all the action is. And, you know, through an investment that Oxford had with Heinz over in Europe, you know, got to know some of that Heinz team. And, you know, the market was hot. It was 2006. They were looking for bodies and ended up moving over to, to London and joined Heinz and spent you know, all my 20s over in Europe working for them, focused on acquisition and value-add work throughout Western Europe. It's a lot of fun, great time to be over there. Got to see a couple good years and a couple very tough years, but it was a great you know, formative experience to see the ups and downs in the industry and work at a leading development shop. Actually, funny quick story on that. I had the privilege of sitting beside Jerry Hines for several of those years, not because I was important, but because Jerry was, you know, in London very rarely and had a, a small office off in the corner, which is where mine was. So it was pretty neat to, to get that exposure. I moved back to Toronto after business school in 2013. You hit a point in your career when you're over your seas when you say, am I going to continue to be a global citizen or move back to Toronto? And, you know, my girlfriend ultimately, now wife at the time, and I decided to move back. And, you know, it was interesting when I moved back, I sort of said, you know, I, I know more about global real estate than Toronto real estate having been gone for so long and spent three and a half great years at CPPIB focused on the real estate investing program throughout North America and really enjoyed the experience there. I mean, it's a large institution. You see every big you know, transaction in the world. But you know, I missed the proximity to the, to the real estate, missed sort of the GP side of things. And so I moved over to Tricon you know, in 2015 and came over to Tricon to focus on a rental apartment strategy. And yeah, as you said at the, at sort of the call, fast forward to today, I'm you know, focused on building our business here in Canada, where we've got nine projects, about 4,200 units on the go, and trying to build out the leading portfolio of Class A purposeful rentals in the city. Andrew, you're, I know you're kind of a Toronto boy, and you kind of left for a number of years. Were you leaving because you wanted the exposure to global real estate? I mean, like maybe just back up. Why real estate? What was the attraction? You know, it's funny. I've never not had a, a real estate job. You know, when I was in high school, I guess it always kind of occurred to me that I like business and geography and urbanization and design. And, you know, I sort of like those themes and a real estate investing career seemed like, a, you know, a way to sort of channel all those interests and can be financially rewarding. And so I actually did all my summer internships and undergrad at uh, CBRE in the research department. And, you know, that's kind of always what I've known. Well, coming back to Canada, you said 2013, 
not a bad time from a valuation perspective to return to this market. Because it might have been a little sleepier uh, when you left, but 2013 onwards, especially in apartments, has been super, super active. So can you comment on you know, what you saw overseas before you left? How, how was the markets over there by comparison to Toronto's you know, last uh, seven years, which have been pretty good? Mm-hmm. You know, I think the overseas markets have their nuances based on sort of stability of capital. And, you know, that's not hugely dissimilar than to Toronto. Over in Europe, the markets like Germany, uh, the UK, to a slightly lesser extent, France have a huge amount of you know, pension fund capital, insurance company capital, and, you know, tend to be higher multiple, lower cap rate markets. And, you know, those have seen sort of the same valuation trends that we see here. Italy and Spain have sort of lagged and those were, you know, somewhat the more opportunistic markets and offer higher yields and, and tend to be where core investors play in the margins to look for slightly incremental economics and certainly where a lot of, you know, the more opportunistic investors play. So, you know, I think every market's different, but, you know, I think certain markets in Europe had generally tracked Canada in terms of stability and, and others hadn't. You're sorry, I'm thinking about where I want to go with this question next. I've got two different paths and they're totally different. Let's stick with Tricon for now. Pretend I've never heard of Tricon before. Maybe just give us the three minute pitch of who you are, what the philosophy is, and you know, what your history is. Sure thing. So Tricon is a rental housing company focused on the middle market demographic. We've been around for 31 years. And you know, for the first 20 odd years of our business, we ran closed ended private equity funds and we backed for sale condo developers. Whether that was up here in Toronto, uh, we provided equity financing to the Crestford, Blanteros, Candarells, and, and you know, Freeds and other groups of the world. And then in the US, we backed a you know, significant number of developers in the US Sunbelt. You know, when the company went public in 2010, you know, I think the combination of being a public company, which, you know, uh, investors like stable recurring dividend type income, as well as the LP community that, you know, we typically uh, manage capital for looking for, you know, longer duration, sort of all weather strategies, we pivoted more to a rental story and a rental series of strategies. So, you know, in the US in 2012, we entered uh, the single family rental sector in a meaningful way. Fast forward to today, and we're the third largest largest homeowner in the US. We own about 22,000 single family rental homes that we rent out. And up in Canada in 2015, Tricon, alongside one of our longtime investor partners, was one of the first movers to you know, pivot into the purpose-built rental strategy. You know, I remember at the time, people thought we were crazy, not looking at condos. But you know, fast forward to today, there's a lot of other groups clearly also looking to push into rental in a meaningful way. You know, up here, our program is focused on the, uh, you know, the professional workforce in Toronto, in the U.S., our strategy is a little bit more, you know, middle market workforce related. But you know, in an aggregate, we uh, as a company own about thirty-five thousand rental units throughout North America. You know, a significant part of our balance sheet is in the U.S. Growing part of our balance sheet is is up here, and we continue to uh, you know scale our rental businesses on both sides of the border. So you said something interesting there. We'll get into some of your other developments, but. I specifically wanted to ask you about the Selby for anybody not from the Toronto area. It's it's in Midtown Toronto. It's I think I believe fifty two stories. And last year it won development of the year, apartment development of the year. Maybe uh, maybe Andrew can correct me here. But I, I would have thought you would have fallen in the luxury rental end of end of the spectrum. Would you say that you are a step below the luxury segment? Yeah, I mean, look, I think luxury is a misnomer. I think if you you know, luxury to some people is two thousand dollars a square foot 
super high end condo, you know, luxury to other people is, you know, a premium apartment built. Like it, I think the word is misleading at times. For for us, you know, we're focused on building housing in Toronto that serves, you know, an underrepresented part of the market. Um, you know, for 40 odd years, um, there hasn't been a meaningful amount of new purpose-built rental development. You know, the focus was uh, for sale condo. And, you know, when we surveyed the market back in 2015, we sort of identified this confluence of, you know, significantly increasing rents, you know, highest population growth rent in North America, stretched for, you know, it's, it's harder and harder to get on the property ladder here, just where housing prices are, and, you know, strong job growth in the downtown core. And so that, that led us to building, you know, a U.S. quality rental stock that responds to the needs of, you know, professional uh, millennials who are looking for high quality amenities, gym, um, you know, parcel lockers, great pool. We think that's a terrific programming element. And importantly, uh, property management, professional service, integrating a very helpful concierge. If you have any issues with their suite, you know, you type into your mobile doorman app, what your issue is, we're able to, to address those things quickly. And, you know, also just the ease of signing a lease. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more during the COVID times. But, you know, I think professionals in Toronto uh, who are looking to rent are faced with this exercise of, you know, do I, you know, muck about on, on Kijiji and Craigslist for a couple of days and send emails to, you know, random, you know, Gmail addresses, in many instances, people who don't live in Canada who own units and try to get a lease over the goal line, or do they live in a professionally managed, high quality purpose-built rental building? Um, and so we've internalized property management earlier this year. We think that's a really important step to, you know, serving our residents. And, you know, I think, uh, again, we continue to, to build housing that responds to a gap in the market, which is, you know, professionally managed, high quality rental housing for uh, people in the city of Toronto. Quick follow-up on that. The, you mentioned Tricon Living, of course, coming out earlier this year. Was that in order to control the tenant experience or was that in order to grab the profit inherent in property management? <laughs> you know, property management in uh, rental housing is, is not as profitable or, you know, is nowhere close to the, you know, revenue model of property management of, of commercial uh, real estate where you've got, you know, huge leasing commissions on, on huge leases and a much lighter staffing model. For us, it was very much about controlling the resident experience. I think um, anything in life, you know, you're always going to have this principal agent dynamic if, you know, you outsource things. And, um, you know, it was important to us to, you know, not only control the resident experience, but be able to control, um, you know, cleaning quality, you know, maintenance issues, um, really try to deliver, uh, you know, really high quality resident programming, be able to, to leverage data and analytics, marketing, you know, et cetera. And I think, you know, we've been a property manager in the U.S. for, for several years now. And, uh, you know, we've got an incredible toolbox of technology, just given we've had to manage disparate single family rental homes scattered around the U.S. And so, you know, whether it's smart home technology, virtual tours, et cetera, I mean, these are things we were doing, you know, well before the COVID crisis. And so, you know, that's behooved us very much as it relates to being able to, uh, you know, drive leasing and, and, and manage remotely during COVID times. Follow me for a second, because this is a bit, you know, a little bit different of a question. Pretend we're in a world that's void of COVID, okay? And we don't have that challenge kind of hanging over our heads right now. You've kind of been talking around this, and I, in my mind, I call it programmatic living, and maybe that's just a buzzword, and you can describe what language you use inside Tricon. But there's a lot of things that I hear about in the U.S. where there's movie nights and 
you know, they're building, you know, a floor full of communal kitchens and they've got chefs doing, I don't know, whatever, sushi programs and all sorts of different activities. You, you've been kind of, I've been talking about the fringes of those types of experiences. Is that something that you think you can bring up that I think is more prevalent in the U.S. that can be attractive in Canada and, and maybe just talk around your experiences of, you know, being a U.S. participant and how, how they, that may differ between sort of the tenant base? We absolutely, you know, whether it's our own experiences or just by studying, you know, U.S. markets, we've we've definitely interwoven a lot of, you know, that into what we deliver up here for our residents. And so, you know, I think creating community, creating friendships, authentic moments, and people uh, being excited about being in the building not only attracts residents up front, but it also makes them sticky. And so whether it's creating, you know, an exclusive partnership with Toronto Life where our residents are able to get access to, you know, hot lists of restaurants and events in the city, you know, before the magazines published, um, you know, partnership with BioSteel and, uh, you know, uh, Matt Nickel, who's the Leafs and Raptors head trainer to design our gyms. You know, we, we uh, Oliver and Bonaccini, who's a, you know, a retail tenant in our building, they do cooking classes, mixology classes. They can, you know, cater the pool uh, events from time to time where we'll bring in a DJ. We do all these things and it's, uh, it certainly helps enrich the resident experience and, um, you know, is a, is a key part of our value proposition. So the crux is what's that worth on a per square foot rent basis? Yeah, look, I think the attribution is difficult. You know, I, I think, um, it's hard to answer that, but I think it, it certainly drives leasing velocity. It, it, drives renewal rates and it, you know, it, it, uh, it definitely, you know, helps filter through, but it's, it's ultimately the value proposition. And, you know, on things like the gym, I mean, we've got an incredibly high quality gym where there's no question that, you know, residents who might've otherwise been paying, you know, 7,500 plus bucks a month in rent, you know, would, would absolutely walk into our gym and say, you know, I can avoid paying that expense because of the quality of this gym. So I think, you know, on, on, on things like that, it's a little more quantifiable, but in terms of the Overall, I think it's, it's the experience that they value. So on the topic of, of leasing up, one of your larger projects was leasing up prior to COVID-19 and obviously you've been leasing up during. Has all the amenities helped you through what would be you know, leaner lease up timeframes or does it hurt because it's perceived extra expense? Yeah, good question. I mean, the amenities were closed. You know, every rental building in the city had to close their amenities, call it, you know, April through, you know, midway through July. So with, uh, you know, the amenities closed, I think, um, you know, that that certainly impacts the perceived value proposition, you know, in a highly amenitized building. You know, what ultimately allowed us to be successful leasing during that period was being able to, you know, do virtual tours, you know, within a day of being shut down. And virtual tours is, you know, a it's it's where our leasing agents are getting on the phone with prospects. They're walking them through, um, you know, videos, images of available suites, the amenities, providing a voiceover story and, and really not missing a beat in terms of timing. And again, I think that sort of, you know, that technology, that platform, that training and that approach was, you know, something that was already in place, just given that something we do, uh, you know, in our U.S. single family rental business. So, um, you know, look, the amenities are back open now. I think, you know, people knowing they can use the pool, knowing they can use the gym in particular, you know, during these times is nice. But um, yeah, no, we didn't have those tools available during, uh, you know, during the, the depths of, uh, of COVID this spring. So can you comment on, on that specific time frame in terms of leasing velocity? I mean, obviously there was 
just the as as you said, you had the ready made solution, which you put you in a unique position because a lot of landlords had to adapt. But just in terms of prospective tenant inquiries, can you comment on how it was through you know April May and maybe where it is now, given that we are you know what it feels like into some sort of next stage of this COVID experience? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely slowed down. You know, when you think about the city of Toronto and and what really propels our you know our real estate market, it's you know the highest population growth rate in North America. It's big, high quality universities. You know, Ryerson, U of T, uh, George Brown. It's strong job growth across multiple sectors. And you know, the borders got shut, schools closed, and you know, there wasn't a good news story on on job growth. So, you know, I think that sort of natural demand that, you know, on the margin started to, to, to soften a little bit. And I think, you know, people were staying put. I mean, for all, we were in many ways in uh, sort of lockdown orders. And so, um, you know, it was, it was slow uh, in April, most certainly. We did lots of virtual tours. I think we, we found that, you know, the conversion rate in terms of apps from virtual tours is, is lower than in person. And so, um, you know, I think we, we were able to, to certainly chip away and, and, you know, be in the double digits in terms of leasing at the, the buildings. But uh, it was, you know, a meaningful uh, reduction to what we'd experienced in, in previous months. But, uh, you know, we're, things, things are, you know, have improved significantly. Whether it's, it's the warm weather and people wanting to get outside, you know, uh, I think just a general approach that uh, people are willing to take, you know, measured, uh, you know, risks being outside with a mask, et cetera, tour, tour spaces and new housing. Um, you know, we've been seeing, you know, good tour volume, 150 odd leads a week, you know, well north of, uh, you know, 50 tours. And, um, you know, the apps and leasing uh, momentum's really picked back up. You had mentioned some sort of the logic of fundamentals within the apartment space. And so let's stay there and then let's get into sort of investment strategies next. But, you know, one of the things that I've always found really fascinating is the relationship between income and rents. And we've seen, you know, quote unquote, like the decoupling of that relationship in certain markets, predominantly Vancouver. How do you guys, you know, what's the internal conversations about that in your markets about, you know, can rents continue to rise? (laughs) beyond the growth of inflation, beyond the growth of income, uh, or is there just an inherent ceiling? Like, how do, how do you guys talk about that when you're kind of sitting around mm-hmm. the table philosophizing just about the apartment market? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think as a long-term owner, as an owner who cares very much about our residents and, you know, doing what's right, not what's easy, you know, we're not, for us, we're measured in how we think about, you know, rental growth. We're measured about, you know, taking a long-term view. So, you know, for us, uh, you know, we're not looking to push the boundary. You know, the way we think about your question is is just kind of looking at the trends that we see in our own properties and also kind of calibrating that against what we see globally. And I think that Toronto has, you know, in many ways sort of ascended to world city status. If you look at, you know, cities like New York or London, where having, you know, roommates into your 30s is is common just because of the cost of living. I think, you know, that Adam mentioned the Selby, our twos and threes were the first to lease up to roommates. And I think that just speaks to um, the affordability narrative of, of where Toronto is. You know, so for us, you know, we're, we're always thinking about that. We're always thinking about, you know, the bulk rent, not the per square foot rent, you know, what, what squares and makes sense versus local incomes. And, you know, thinking about, 
sizing units off of, you know, rents that make sense or incomes and then rents that make sense. And, you know, also, you know, being really mindful of, you know, amenities and programming and, and our overall value proposition to residents, knowing that, you know, housing is deeply important to people. Housing is expensive uh, any way you cut it. And, um, you know, trying to be mindful of, of creating an overall experience that, that residents are, are willing to, you know, pay for. And, you know, nobody's, nobody's forcing anyone to live uh, in our properties. We've got to, you know, put out a compelling value proposition. It'd be a lot easier if you could force people to live in your apartments, but I do see your point. Uh, I, I know that Tricon has a, a long-term view on the ownership of these apartment buildings. And I'm, you know, I'm sure you've heard the term, the Manhattanization of Toronto, so I've got a two-part question. Does Tricon have any exposure in Manhattan? And is your investment philosophy built around that happening here in Toronto? Yeah, as, as a long-term owner, we firmly believe that the, you know, the renter base in Toronto will continue to grow and be sustained over time. And again, I think if you think about, you know, the attractiveness of, of Canada and Toronto as a place for, you know, ongoing population growth, we're not building uh, any more, uh, any more single family homes within the green belt, or it's, it's few and far between. And I think when you think about you know, where rentership is going compared to other world cities. It, it you know, it's a very accepted form of, of long-term housing in, you know, other, other locations around the world. And I think you're going to see that here. I think the thing and the challenge for us is, is, you know, how do we future-proof our buildings today? You know, I think one of the interesting trends in, in real estate to contemplate because I think it's something we've sort of always taken for granted is, is this, you know, millennial population is that, you know, for the first time in 15 odd years, the, the percentage of the population or absolute number of people who are millennials is going down because this cohort is going into, you know, their 30s and household formation years. And so if you think about where the puck's going, not where it is, you know, uh, you've got to be thinking about two and three bedrooms, things like knockdown panels between ones that allow you to combine suites. You know, what are future, what is future parking demand? What is future, you know, parcel demand? You know, things of that nature and really trying to create either, you know, designs that, you know, anticipate where we're going or, or create optionality through your design. So you're in the planning process on, you know, a number of projects. Has the recent COVID pandemic influenced your design at all? Or are you the belief that this will pass? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's a good question, one we think about a lot. Um, you know, philosophically for us, we're a developer who generally shies away from balconies. And what that means is, you know, another 50-odd square feet of, of usable space. You know, do we think, you know, outdoor, you know, access to the outdoors is important and wonderful? Absolutely. So, you know, a reason for not doing balconies is, is somewhat calculated. We're, we're very mindful of doing, you know, Juliet balconies that create wonderful indoor-outdoor space. But we think that that, you know, additional 50-odd square feet of living space much makes for a much more functional uh, and a livable suite. And I think, you know, in particular, at, at times like these, when people are you know, have an exercise in their suite, work from home, et cetera, you know, that 50 extra feet is, is more useful than ever. So, you know, from a suite design perspective, uh, you know, I, I, I think we kind of had already done something that, that helps, you know, the work from home and exercise from home dynamic. We are very mindful about smart technologies in our buildings, you know, from Nest thermostats to, you know, parcel lockers to smart locks, et cetera. And so, you know, I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't see 
any meaningful you know changes in how we've approached design. And I guess the other the part of the process, the earlier part of the process, so, you know, pre, the precedes design is is site selection. Mm-hmm. Two part question: the first being, what did you look for in sites? How did you put together these some of these off market opportunities that you've unearthed prior to COVID nineteen? And has COVID nineteen changed any of the geography considerations? You know, going forward for your next big project. Yeah. So with respect to, you know, site selection, and and I think my response probably blends your previous question in as well. You know, I think there's going to be increased demand for neighborhood living in close proximity to shops, the grocery store, park system, ravine system, etc. And, you know, the idea of standing and waiting for an elevator where only two people can be in trying to get up to your, you know, 50 story apartment um, becomes a consideration. You know, I think you're going to see more demand for avenues type living in, in, in neighborhoods with green space. And so we've been, you know, mindful of thinking about that as we've considered, you know, acquisitions in these times. But, you know, development, you know, is, is a putting up one of these projects takes several years. And I, I think there's reason to believe and have a high degree of confidence that, you know, within hopefully three years, we should be back in, you know, quite normal times. And so I think, you know, short term, we're thinking more about, you know, avenues, neighborhoods, et cetera. But, um, you know, we just, we still, still do feel good about, you know, long-term opportunities downtown. And, you know, with respect to unlocking opportunities and and, and locations, you know, uh, you made the comment about affordability earlier. You know, we're looking in locations that are, you know, well, well connected by transit, but, you know, are, are, you know, perhaps slightly outside, you know, the core right now where we think there's an opportunity on on, in terms of just an overall re-rating of a neighborhood. And, you know, in terms of you know, buying well, I mean, uh, don't want to, to to be too specific. That's the secret sauce of, of rental development, you know, trying to get to good, to good land buys. But um, you've got to be creative. And I think you've got to be open to partnership. And, and I think, you know, there are, there's a lot of, you know, uh, legacy land positions in this city owned by folks who, you know, don't have the skill set to entitle sites or to certainly develop them themselves. You've got to be open to partnering with groups like that. The government, whether it's, you know, the Housing Now program or the Provincial Affordable Housing Lands program, there's more and more uh, opportunity to partner with government to do rental projects, which have an important affordable housing component. And so, you know, I think you've, you've got to be flexible and, 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 and open to different structures when you're, you know, trying to buy land well. How important is transit now, sort of not post-COVID, but as, we've, as there's been sort of a paradigm shift within a lot of organizations that they realize you know what, you know, my employees can work from home. Maybe it's not full time once we get back to whatever the next normal looks like. But certainly, I, you know, historically, it's always been transit oriented, transit oriented. You start to say, mm, maybe transit's not my number one priority, or maybe it was number two or number three. And now it's number number four, number five. Like, it, does it lose some of its value being transit oriented? Mm-hmm. I think it's too early to say. You know, at the end of the day, this city does have some significant traffic challenges. I think that building parking is, you know, dilutive and expensive. So you've got to be careful about, you know, the pendulum swinging too far. I, uh, I must say kudos to your previous guest, John Love. I saw a LinkedIn post of him, uh, him bravely wearing a mask on the on the subway recently, looking sharp and a suit and tie. So, you know, if, if he's doing it, uh, I think that that's a good sign. But no, we, we, you know, we continue to be mindful of, of transit, you know, oriented locations, whether it's 
subway, streetcar, et cetera, I think that will that will remain a key ingredient to rental housing. It's just you know it's it's just important to uh, to driving demand. You mentioned affordability there briefly. So maybe it's worth diving into your West Donlands project. I believe that is the, the biggest one that you have underway. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So it's a large, large uh, master plan community we have uh, in partnership with Dream and uh, and Kilmer Group. So it's you know together we control about twelve acres down in the West Onlands, which uh, we're on construction on one of the blocks, just tying up entitlements on another. And uh, you know overall, it's going to be out twenty five hundred units in total. And I think there's some. To my mind, I think it's the largest and most significant rental project in the, in the country for, for several reasons. I mean, firstly, it's uh, introducing a lot of supply, uh, which I think is important to addressing you know, some of that affordability and housing challenges that we have in Toronto. Two, about 30% of the units in the community are, uh, are affordable, which is, which is great. It's something that we're excited about. And quite frankly, we think this integrated model of affordable and, uh, and market rate is how we build complete communities in the city. And we think is, is a future model for city building. On one of the blocks, we've, we've partnered with uh, Ashwanabi uh, Health Toronto to build rental housing, uh, as well as an indigenous hub, which you know, I think is, a, is something we're excited about partnering them with. And it allows them to um, bring uh, several of their facilities around Toronto into one location. And, uh, you know, lastly, we, we really think we're building something special here. We've partnered with uh, Kobe Architects out of Denmark, Claude Cormier on the landscape architecture side, and another Danish architect by the name of Henning Larsen, who are, you know, uh, sort of uh, design leads as well as Architects Alliance in Toronto. And we think we're really creating an amazing community that is diverse. It uh, has a beautiful sort of open air public realm that's designed for the pedestrian experience. And, you know, it, it taps into some, you know, amazing local amenities in the location, be it uh, the distillery district, you know, what's gone on with the Canary District and the Pan Am Village, and really sort of completes the, the overall master plan, as well as the proximity to, um, you know, Canary Common Park and the river system. So it's a, it's a large project with uh, multiple levels of government involved and something we're really excited about. Can you talk to just how the relationship between Kilmer Dream and yourselves kind of came about? Was it a bidding process? I mean, what was the catalyst that brought those three entities together? Yeah, um, the province brought these sites to market through a process in 2017. And, you know, Dream and Kilmer, given their expertise and uh, the great contributions they've made in, in the West Onlands, and again, the expertise they have made them a, a group that we were interested in partnering with. And, um, you know, Tricon as a rental focus group brought that skill set. And so the three of us are, uh, are serving as, as uh, equal partners and, and co-developers, and then Tricon will be the operator. And is part of the desire to do affordable, is that, uh, you know, social conscience on the part, on the part of the, the company? Uh, is there an economic case for it? You know, how do you weigh those two things? So, you know, with respect to the affordable housing element, I mean, when, you know, Tricon has been investing in, you know, this, you know, housing type for, you know, uh, almost a decade now. When you look at our U.S. portfolio, which is, you know, primarily focused on workforce housing, I mean, we're, we're providing roofs for, upwards of 30,000 families who represent the hardworking workforce in the U.S. Um, you know, these are homes that three-bedroom houses that rent out, you know, closer to, you know, 13, 1400 bucks a month. And with experience managing housing for, you know, the hardworking workforce, it's something that we take great pride in. They're great tenants. And, um, you know, 
quite frankly, a lot of them in different instances work in nursing, teachers, you know, firefighters, clerical workers, et cetera. And, you know, we're, you know, these are the, you know, the important, you know, frontline members of our society who are huge contributors to, you know, the viability of cities. And I think it's a, it's a problem, quite frankly, when this hardworking cohort of society is dealing with huge commutes, you know, doesn't have great housing options. And, and um, you know, I think the combination of our experience, you know, providing housing for, for the affordable cohort, as well as the, you know, pride we have in, in being a long-term steward in the communities that, that we operate in is something that, uh, you know, gives us absolute comfort in, uh, in doing affordable housing. I like, I like In fact, it's something we, we'd, li- we'd like to do more of. It's something we'd like to do more of. Yeah, that uh, the demand for affordable housing is definitely definitely got, not going anywhere. And uh, it is great that you're bringing a lot of units to market, but you know the building industry needs to bring a whole lot more to market uh, you know, over the next uh, decades. Well, and Adam, sorry to cut you off, and we should we would be remiss not to mention that you know we've got you know federal government support, right? The CMHC is looking at every possible angle to bring more of these units on board and, and offering as much incentive as they can for groups like Tricon. So I, I think it's it's something we're going to see more and more of for those that are don't have the visibility into the apartment market space. We're going to see a lot more affordable units coming coming to fruition across the country over the next you know decade or two. Andrew, no, you, you're absolutely right, Aaron, and you know you're absolutely right. And uh, CMHC has been a terrific partner in this initiative. We've got one more aspect of building that we want to talk to you about before we let you go. The sites that you've got, you know, you've definitely targeted, you know, downtown sites for for anybody not that familiar with Tricon or you know or Toronto. You could draw a pretty tight circle around downtown. You would capture most of their projects. So you've ended up building on sites where you've had heritage issues, you've had weird shapes, you've had, you know, smaller sites where you're putting up, you know, 30 stories. When you're when you're putting together your your pro forma, it, do your build costs, do you find that they're higher than if you're looking at more suburban sites and is it worth it in terms of the extra rent you can capture? You know, I, I think you got to take that question in parts, you know, in terms of the valuation uh, and, and everyone listening to this will understand, I mean, um, you know, rents and cap rates are, are an important drive are the two most important drivers to, you know, the capital value story. So, you know, you need to be mindful of, you know, where you can get to satisfactory economics relative to your costs. And, you know, for us, at least our worldview is that needs to be in transit connected, you know, locations in Toronto, you know, with respect to location and, you know, site specific attributes, you know, there's, there's, you know, rental is, you know, uh, it doesn't have as much margin in it as condo, at least short term, at least. And so, you know, we've got to be mindful, as I said earlier, of buying land well. Uh, it's tough to co- for us to compete in the open market. So we've got to, you know, be uh, methodical and strategic about our land buy. We've got to be thoughtful about, you know, parking ratios. Where do we have, uh, you know, the ability to, you know, have a 0.2 parking ratio, just given, you know, the tenant demographic, you can get away with, with less parking that can really help. And, uh, you know, just continuing to be, to be mindful about construction costs, where you spend premiums, where you don't, and, you know, being maniacally focused on, on execution. I think one thing that is just something I find profound is that, you know, construction costs, you know, people pay very different numbers. And, you know, I think having a a great construction team with deep relationships who can tender, award, you know, leverage relationships can, you know, be the difference between a meaningful, um, you know, margin on cost and a very small margin on cost. And so, you know, again, I think it's a, a function of land, 
parking, building efficiency, and any you know site-specific issues, and really, really, really being laser-focused on the tendering and award side, and um, you know that can really make or break projects. Yeah, you, know, you raise a, a very valid point about apartments having to be very disciplined in your underwriting and execution in order to you know, to see the profit out of it. And of course, the headwind you constantly face on site acquisition is condo developers. You know, you've mentioned it a couple of times throughout where we are right now with you know condo facing more headwinds than apartments. Do you think that the pressure you face from competition and purchasing sites from condo developers will be diminished over the next twelve months? Yeah, great question. We'll see. I mean, I um, I don't wish negativity or, or challenges upon anybody. I think that we'll see what happens. I think going into this in March, I think we had thought that, you know, just given what was going on in Asia and, and you know, what that means for the Toronto condo market might have a chilling effect on, you know, condo launches and, and just velocity. Um, you know, there's been a handful of launches and it seems like by and large, things have gone pretty well. And anecdotally, you know, on the land side, we've been pretty actively pursuing opportunities. I mean, like land pricing has stayed, you know, pretty darn full. And so I wouldn't say an opportunity has availed itself yet, but uh, there's certainly a bunch of uh, condo launches gearing up for September and, and we'll see if the market can bear, you know, 15, 20 plus launches and, and if buyer demand is there. So I think time will tell. I want to remind our listeners that uh, Adam and I are going to do a bit of an after show once we're done with Andrew. You know, Andrew, you've told Adam that he's asked a good question four times now and I've not got one. <laughs> so I'm going to try to ask the best possible question I can think of. You know what? I only compliment. I don't compliment you because you have such good hair. You know, I, I'm not. I, you don't need any compliment. I definitely need the boost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this question's a little bit more fun, and I and I always kind of throw this out there. Other than apartments, because we've spent the entire time in apartments, so let's just shift gears completely. And, and we're we're wrapping up now, so this is kind of for fun. You have an endless amount of money. What are you investing in right now? Can't say apartments. Um, that's that's the, that's the yeah, and I feel like also saying industrial would be too easy. Okay, um, so you have, you have to retail or office where are you putting your money? Data centers, oh, something like that. <laughs> yeah, fair. No, I, I'm not going to give you like the the top. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, you're going to compliment, compliment me on the good question right. first. Sorry, thank you. Great, great question, great thank question, you. Aaron. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna just repeat a, a research report that everyone's read for the last two years about five years about veg and sheds being good investments. You know, I think it's about trying to unlock pockets of value and sort of where there's trends interrupted and, and trends accelerated. I, you know, on the retail side, I, you know, it's hard to see meaningfully positive headlines there short term. So I, I can't get myself behind that. You know, I would think that in hospitality, you know, there's got to be some opportunistic buys to be had right now of hotels, you know, more in the US than Canada uh, are a business where there's always a pretty colorful history of ownership transfers and mezzanine foreclosures. And, you know, very few people own the same hotel for a long time. And so I think if you can buy the dips, you know, there's going to be opportunity. And so, I, you know, if I, uh, if I were running around with a blank check, I think hospitality and, and trying to buy some dips in distress right now, you know, from levered groups could be interesting. That's probably the short term one that comes to mind. And, you know, I also think on the security side, there's still, you know, some, you know, high quality names out there that are, are reasonably sold off, you know, whether that is in retail, 
or um, even companies with with great fundamentals. Like I, I think that you know our single family rental business in the U.S. has been incredibly countercyclical throughout the last three months. You know we've never had more demand. I think you know our stock is trading cheap, and I think you know other groups in the single family rental business will continue to have good runway. You can't fool us, Andrew. You're just going to take those hotels and convert them to apartments, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Anyway, that's a wrap. Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to come on. It was a great conversation. Really enjoyed spending some time with you. I'm looking forward to seeing some more of your work or your more of your, your discussions at the CAIC coming up in a couple of weeks. And of course, reminded of the listeners to stay tuned to the after show. Of course, I'd like to thank First National for powering the podcast and thanks to Informa for setting up this interview. Thanks again, Andrew. Thank you, guys. Welcome to the CRE Podcast After Show. Uh, at this point, it is just Aaron and I sharing our thoughts on the the episode that just came, that we just finished. The first comment I want to say is to Aaron, are you going to have business cards made up that say apartment philosopher on them? Ah, yeah. I think I said philosophizer, to okay. be honest yeah. with you. So let's just be clear. And yes, that will be my catchphrase. Aaron Cameron. Yeah. AVP Commercial Operations Apartment Philosophizer. <laughs> Definitely got a lot of cachet to it. Yeah, interesting interesting topic. You know, as always, one of our favorite subjects, which is apartment. But these are especially interesting because they're large apartment projects, which, you know, gets the, the blood pumping a little faster when you see them. I mean, we kind of touched on it that the, the West Don lands is, you know, 2,500 units and the uh, the Selby is just over 500. So these are all, all very large, sizable projects. And it's amazing because, you know, 10 years ago, a large project would have been 100 units because nobody's building anything. And now they're just all over the country projects these size. Well, well, let's keep recording, Joel. But my beautiful wife just got home from getting her hair done. And she now, she went from a brunette to a blonde. So I'm being very, just, I'm being very distracted. Hey, leave me alone. I got to keep doing this. <laughs> no, and you're, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, it's really interesting how it's fortunate for us to be in this marketplace at this time. And I think it's, it's also, you know, really sort of Toronto, Vancouver, and others, of course, but those two being major markets, you know, really being recognized. I mean, it was talked about today. It's that we have ascended to sort of global cities. And so with that comes major, major developments. And, and it's only a matter of time before apartments kind of catch up to condos as far as just their economic viability. You can't, I mean, I guess they're both around the same. At some point, the costs just kind of equalize, right? Yeah, to the point we did discuss, you know, the Manhattanization, which, you know, people love that term. We did discuss that uh, happening in Toronto. I mean, I definitely would have been part of the old process of apartment leasing when I was, you know, living in apartments. I cared about price and I cared about location, but nothing else. It was it, even the size of the units didn't matter to me. Uh, amenities were, were never present when you're looking at price only as your overriding factor, you know, at the age of, uh, of 21. Uh, but it is definitely like a growing sector in the country. The people that uh, you know, have the means to budget for, you know, a nicer apartment and then the offerings going in there and, and apartments not just being a stepping stone to condo ownership and then you know then home ownership out in the suburbs which is the usual path well and andrew said it like i asked the question and it's one of those things talk about philosophizing it's one of those things that i always kind of think about the the, the relationship between income levels and and the ability to pay your rent and and he kind of said yeah but if you're an international city those two things aren't related that's not a fundamental i think income just being able to you know 
earn an income is clearly connected, but your level of your income just means how many other people do you need to live with in order to afford the rent in that particular location that you're that you're so attracted to, right? It becomes more about just do I need one roommate or two roommates, not you know, <laughs> can I afford this one bedroom? Yeah. Uh, we also touched on you know high rise versus mid rise. Aaron, when I first met you, you were you were in a high rise right downtown. I don't know which floor, but if you were still in that apartment building now with everything going on, would you have a desire to get to you know a mid-rise building that was maybe not uh, right in the heart of downtown? Those damn cockroaches, I'd still be living there. And I won't mention <laughs> the building or the owner now that I've mentioned cockroaches. But yeah, yeah, living on the 25th floor overlooking downtown in a 1960s-esque building. So it was an older development. But yeah, like I think it's really attractive still. I guess it just depends. I don't know if amenities matter to me either. Like you kind of mentioned it and maybe it's just our age. Maybe it's just, you know, we're kind of millennials, but not really. We're, I guess, more more generation X or, or slightly below that before that, right? So I don't know if it matters to me that there's, you know, a really nice gym and, you know, a high end cooking classes and, you know, that programmatic living. I don't know if that's a new generation thing or not. I really don't, honestly. Yeah. I mean, you know, as I mentioned, you know, price being a determining factor, I never looked at a building that offered any of those. So I didn't know that that could, could exist. Well, but, yeah. Uh, when I was apartment yeah. renting, I didn't even think about that stuff. I wasn't going, I need a pool. I need a rooftop patio. I need access to a pool lounge, right? Like I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff. But maybe that is part of the psyche of today's renter, right? I, like a, a court, I mean, it must be. Clearly, you and I have interviewed a whole bunch of apartment developers, luxury, mid-market, low-market, and they're all talking about amenitization of their of their assets. Like it's clearly something that matters to tenants. You know, we actually we interviewed Amy Erickson right, when she was doing that renter survey back in I guess that was January, February, and it was clearly very, very important. I mean, I think I can't remember one of the top amenities was dog washing stations, like things. These are, these are things that people truly care about and to some level, somehow are willing to pay more rent. You know, I asked the question kind of tongue in cheek today about, you know, what does that convert into like a per square foot rent? Like clearly you, you can never do that sort of actuarial calculation, but it, it clearly results in higher income if you have nicer amenities. Like it just does. Otherwise, people will be building these big blocks with nothing but units and they're not. So there is logic to it. I just doesn't appeal to me for whatever reason. The free hand of the market, or invisible, sorry, invisible hand of the market at work. That's why they're building it, those kinds of amenities. Well, you used to be a dog owner or two in a high rise. I'm sure you'd have enjoyed a dog washing station. But one of the other things we talked about today was site selection. And, you know, Andrew's being modest, but they've managed to put together some really nice sites in a, in a relatively short period of time. But he also touched on that the math is tough to make work. I remember at one of the real estate forum conferences a couple of years ago, one of the comments was, you know, apartments work well if the land is free, which does apply to a lot of sites. You know, they could have been built a long time ago of an excess land. But if you're a developer looking to start right now, that does not help you at all that you need a land basis that is free. And that, and that is, this was three or four years ago. So that, that is a little antiquated. But trying to get sites that work in a downtown location, you know, can be tough with the condo, condo headwinds. Yeah, that's an interesting conversation because, you know, we've been fortunate enough to interview a whole bunch of different people around in our industry. And it feels like, and he mentioned it, you know, there's, there's lots of people that are looking at, you know, looking at investing in apartments or apartment development. I'd almost go the other way. Name me a real estate owner that isn't thinking about apartment development right now. Like it seems like it's just everybody is thinking, I, if I've got sites, I want to intensify. Whether you're Crombie REIT, Choice Properties REIT, Rio Can Living, I mean, it just go on and on. If you own real estate, everybody's thinking about building apartments because of the durability and stability of that cash flow. And the land's free, quote unquote, effectively free. 
guys like Tricon and others where you've got to go out and buy that land and acquire that land, it makes it a different equation. It makes it probably a little bit harder. And I'd, I'd be really curious. I, I was thinking while we were interviewing Andrew just about what it's going to be like looking back 15 years from now as we're seeing this surge in apartment development, whether it's on existing sites or whether it's on new sites or assembled sites or whatever it may be. And if they're all of a sudden it becomes harder to build condos because apartments are more attractive. Like it'd be, it's just, it's, we're in an interesting inflection point, I think, in the real estate community where apartments are now becoming, you know, the, the hot commodity versus before. I mean, shoot, there's been, there was 20 years there between sort of the 90s and 2010 where basically zero apartments got built. But it's been said that COVID's just sped up existing patterns in a numerous fronts. And that one is, is one of them that, you know, apartments being viable, this is not, a brand new phenomenon that they work all of a sudden, that the, the condo developers got a bit of headwinds. They'd already had a lot of momentum for, for having sites that work, but for sure, this is some wind in the sails of trying to make projects viable. And yeah, to your point, you know, all these big players that basically have parking lots scattered across in the country in prime locations, if you said to them eight years ago, hey, I think there's a good chance you're going to be building out 10,000 units in these parking lots, you probably would have got a weird look. And then, uh, you know, here we are now. With you know values on apartment news having doubled, if not more, and the value of the stability of the cash flow they provide being through the roof in terms of uh, the way that the market perceives having it, so it's uh, it's interesting times, and it's a good spot to be for for you and I as lenders, given apartments yeah. are our, yeah, <laughs> our bread and butter. <laughs> and, and here we, we never do this, but here's a teaser, and I, I, I apologize, but you've got to be part of the uh, real estate forum club. But Adam and I were fortunate enough to have a conversation with Donald Klo of Crombie Reit. And then the, we've done a podcast previously. We mentioned the same thing, but this is just mind-blowing. You know, five, it was something like $5.8 billion of cost of apartment development in their pipeline. Like That's nuts. And so I, the teaser is, if you want to learn more about what Donald Klo had to talk about that, you got you to gotta join the Ref Club and stay tuned. But I mean, that's just one group. I don't even know what Choice Properties is probably more than that. I don't even know what Rio Can's number is. So you start adding it up, like there are a billion, like 10 to maybe 50 to 100 billion dollars of development in apartments coming in the pipeline that people are not just talking about, but have entitlement process engaged, you know, cash put aside. They're engaging with their lenders or whatever their equity sources are to put the capital where their mouth is. Like it's coming. So it is, it'd be really interesting to see where this apartment market, you know, ends up in that 10 to 15 years as all these units come online. Well, all those sites that they're redeveloping are undergoing two changes. One is, of course, conversion of parking lots to apartments, which is a dramatic shift in the use. But retail itself is also changing. So if you were to take a snapshot of these prime retail locations from two years ago and then look at the way they've built them out and changed their use and the tenant mix having shifted over time, accelerated because of COVID-19, they're going to be very different assets in the space of eight, nine years. It's one of the ways that you know people always talk about you know, retail is dead, which you know by all means is not true. But this is the adaptation. This is you know adapt or die. This is what's happening right now in that sector is this is the adaptation that's going to help them survive and see them returning, returning funds to their investors for decades to come because smart people are going to come out the, the other side of this okay. Yeah. Smart centers. I even I forgot to mention smart centers. Think of the amount of parking lots. I can't. Do you remember the number? Now we interviewed Peter Sweeney back in February, and I think it was like I think it was like a hundred football fields of parking lots that they own. That they. I remember. To, yeah, I remember that being to, the metric. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That they're trying to figure out how to intensify, and with predominantly you know apartment building. It is just. It is. It is very very interesting where we are right now in the cycle, and how COVID has just you know amplified the transition to that. Well, Aaron, 
another episode's come to an end. I hope everybody enjoyed listening. Our guest isn't here now, but I'll thank him again for coming on and we'll see you all in the next podcast. And I, I'm sorry you couldn't see how attractive my wife looks as a blonde. Only Adam got the pleasure. <laughs> Thanks no everybody comment. for listening. <laughs> Bye guys. See ya. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.